Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and I am welcoming you to the 86th episode of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which I and my guest will be talking about Francois Truffaut's Two English Girls. Uh, it's been a little while since I've done one of these. I've, uh, I've had the very nice opportunity to take a little vacation up in the north woods of Michigan with my wife and uh, just kind of stepping out and enjoying the summer a little bit. So a little bit of a hiatus between uh, you know the frequency of episodes here. But I'm really happy to be back in the groove again. And I've got a really excellent cast tonight to talk about uh, this film. This has been a memorable week in the uh, annals of Criterion uh, lore. Uh, the Agnes Varda set just got released a couple days ago. I'm recording here on Thursday night, August 13th, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's birthday, by the way. And so, you know, Agnes Varda, this complete uh, kind of mega box that's just hit the shelves. And then on that same day, uh, Criterion announced a pretty impressive selection of Federico Fellini films uh, celebrating his 100th anniversary of his birth. That'll be coming out in November. So been a lot of anticipation for both of those products. And it's uh, definitely a pretty memorable week just uh, for those of us who kind of get off on collecting those things. But we're going to turn our attention tonight on a different uh, auteur, another one of those kind of pillar, tentpole, big personalities that has kind of defined and, and epitomized the Criterion Collection, Francois Truffaut, of course, most famously known for his work as the director of The 400 Blows, the Antoine Duanel series, uh, Day for Night, and just a, you know, a pretty intriguing filmmaker uh, who, it seems to me, doesn't maybe get talked about quite as much these days as maybe he has in the past. And this particular film seems to be one that's been a little bit buried. Uh, I have not really known a whole lot about this film up until the time came on the podcast to prep for it. So we're going to kind of circulate around, share our thoughts and impressions of this film as we get going. But let's first of all, let's talk to uh, our guests and find out who's going to be joining me in this conversation. So first up, uh, William Remmers. How is it going for you, William? It's going okay. Uh, Things things have you know, obviously remained more or less the same since the mm-hmm. last time I was on the show. Uh, and but uh, that was what? Fiddler on the Roof? Was that? The last the, maybe Fiddler or something else. I mean, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's been such a blurry spring and summer. And uh, <laughs> yes. but I, it, it feels like just yesterday, uh, though it was two summers ago, that we did our last Truffaut film together. Yeah. And uh, one thing that's been really fun about doing these podcasts is... As I've aged, the we're not moving at quite the same speed as history. It's a little history is going a little bit faster on your podcast than in reality. But but I love seeing, I love feeling like two years have gone by, and now I'm doing the next Truffaut film, um, and revisiting it in the same span of time that would have been the same for Truffaut and Leo. You know, like they mm-hmm. they would have spent the same amount of time as we just spent, sort of going through it. So I'm glad to be back on the podcasting front. Otherwise, yeah, definitely. For 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 me, uh, go ahead. Well, yeah, yeah. I don't want to interrupt your thought. Yeah, I can just kind of catch up. How how is life going for William these days? Well, it's um, it's good. I, I'm I'm doing what I can to keep busy because um, it's too hot and it's too boring, and there can there is a limit to how many movies I can watch because I think that it, it though it's a very active exercise for folks like us. I think that it can become one of the most passive things you do in a day. And if you watch four movies in a day, you might feel very inactive. So I've, um, I've gone deeper into my pursuit of language study and 
that's yeah, been yeah. a great way to have some like a class to basically take for myself for two hours every day, seven days a week. Um, yeah, I've seen some of your social media posts kind of promoting a particular application. Yeah, there, and, there have been a few. Uh, there yeah. have been a few that I really like um, that I've been coupling with truly film as as like my great source of input. I regret that I can't turn the subtitles off sometimes to to study better, but um, on the channel, for example. Mm -hmm. but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I recommend some apps. Busu and Lingvist are really good if you're trying to up your vocab, um, and um, Busu especially is, is a lot of languages. Certainly better than things like Duolingo and Rosetta Stone, which um, get used a lot, but um, tend to actually provide less of a result because they because they're trying to provide a result, whereas other things have a bit, a bit more manageable in their scope. Um, and I've spent the time to composing some. And uh, when La Religieuse or the Nun was on the channel expiring yeah. last month, Revet film, I started working on a an orchestral piece based on the film and uh it, i don't know how long it might be but maybe maybe even under 15 minutes but i just needed something to do and uh there's nothing like seeing a film that really rocks your world that you can then sort of channel it into abstract music so uh so i look forward to finding more projects like that to share with my film friends who and, and my music friends as well to sort of combine these two interests more and more as i continue to develop various skills that's very intriguing and i certainly would be very privileged to hear a sample of whatever you put together whenever you're ready to share i was very impressed with that film starring anna karina as well uh, kind of in her her uh, prime if you will a uh, little bit after her work with godard but still very much uh a very vivid piece of work so and and those uh those language apps uh, maybe we can even put a couple links in the show notes to help uh, listeners track those down hey sure we, not, we, yeah, we, yeah. we can we could even put in uh my referral link which will get me yeah. 30 free days so that would be great and this is not a paid product placement nope there's only not... 10 positions available <laughs> so after that okay. you don't get your yeah. free 30 days but yeah i'll, I'll send you some links that sounds great now. Yeah, the advertisers have been clamoring to get their, their grip <laughs> on this podcast, but nope, I'm, I'm staying pure. I'm staying old school, <laughs> running it for free. All right, second guest up is Adam Spickerman. Adam, welcome back. Good to be back, David. Yeah, the last time we talked, uh, we were talking about those kind of dystopian sci-fi films, uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Omega Man, and THX 1138. You had some great offerings and insights to offer on that episode. And uh, here we are living in our own dystopia. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, that was back in January. I was just looking up the old episodes. I was like, mm -hmm. man, that was back in the winter we did that. It's It's been a while. But how has life been going for you these days? Yeah, when we recorded that, I really didn't think we'd be living in a dystopia <laughs> within, you know, six weeks uh, yeah. of that. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. I've been uh, fortunate enough to continue working at home. But, you know, I hate the phrase, you know, lucky to be working, which, you know, yeah. employers are very fond of using uh, against people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've been working on a scripted show that I cannot uh, divulge. So it's just been uh, a really great thing to be working on. So I'm a television editor, since most people probably don't remember who I am. And I've done a lot of game shows and other uh types of competition shows in the past, but made the jump last fall into scripted uh, with this current show. And so that's been uh, an exciting advance in the career. Um, yeah. So that's been my most 
most of my thing and just, you know, dealing with, you know, having four of us all living at home together for five months, 24 seven is, uh, is a lot of, <laughs> a lot of fun and a lot of a challenge with, uh, two small kids. So, <laughs> yeah, you've got a young family there and, uh, yeah, I definitely, I've, I've got one son who's, uh, he and his wife have a, a daughter who will be turning two in a couple of days and got another one on the way. And I'm thinking, yeah, that, that these are challenging times for, for parents and kids. And, yeah. and, uh, so, well, but congratulations on that, uh, on that editing gig and certainly look forward to hearing more about that as uh, public uh, details can be disclosed somewhere down the road. <laughs> yeah. All right. And our third guest is another person returning to this show, but this is only his second visit uh, to Criterion Reflections. Norman Buckley, welcome back to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. I had a good time last time and I'm looking forward to talking about this film. Excellent. Yeah, Norman uh, joined me with uh, Jordan S.O., one of our other frequent contributors. Uh, I guess Jordan's our mutual friend, and, and he recruited Norman to talk about Ingmar Bergman's The Touch, which is kind of an interesting road less traveled for Mr. Bergman. And which was, was a film that I, uh, as much as I'm a fan of Bergman, I was not a big fan of that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you kind of gutting it out and getting through it. I think yeah. the film has its redeeming characteristics. We had a good conversation about it. Yeah, it was an interesting discussion because just trying to to really look at the reasons that I had a bad reaction to it was an mm -hmm. interesting experience in itself. Elliot Gould was was the major star. B.B. Uh, Anderson, I believe, was the other kind of mm -hmm. female yeah, and, lead. And Von Sydow, too. Yeah, right. So so all the elements were there, but this was not a Svensk film industry film. And and it's also just, uh, you know, even though it was released in uh, 1970, I believe, or maybe even 71, I think that was still part of season three, uh, it's it's considered a rarity of sorts for Ingmar Bergman. So I, I'm imagining a lot of our listeners did not check out that episode. So Norman, I'm going to give you a chance to introduce yourself and, and tell folks about what you do. Uh, you're, you're a director in the TV business, but uh, go yeah. ahead and fill us in a little bit on your bio and tell us what yeah, you do. Yeah, I'm a TV director. I was an editor for many years before that. I started directing about 17 years ago. Um, I've, I direct a lot of um, the teen dramas. I directed The O.C., I directed Gossip Girl, I directed Pretty Little Liars. Uh, most recently, I did a show for Netflix called Sweet Magnolias, and we just got picked up for a second season. So hopefully in 2021, we'll be back to that. So I'm uh, yeah. uh, looking forward to getting back to work, but it's also been nice to have a little bit of downtime as well. Yeah, I'm trying, as well I'm as... Trying to, I'm trying to look on the bright side of, uh, <laughs> of uh, these, uh, these strange days. Yes, yes, indeed. I, I think when we talked uh, last year, you were down in Atlanta. I think, were you yes, getting uh, ready to, to shoot the first season of Sweet Magnolias then? Right, that's right. I was in prep when we, uh, when we did that podcast. It was, uh, it was a hot summer in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, Hotline that first season, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So that first season was done. It was a success. You've been picked yes, up, uh -huh. and yeah, and I've actually been checking out the episodes just to kind of get a little more familiarity with your work. I, I know I also saw that you've got uh, production credits on the series, so you're yeah, you're yeah, I was well a producer as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was uh, co-executive producer on it, and uh, you know it was a huge success, which was a surprise to all of us. I mean, I think that we all thought it would find its niche, but mm -hmm. I don't think that any of us expected that it was going to come out of the gate being the the huge success that it was and i think part of that is the the pandemic i think the fact that people were looking for something to watch and and something that made them feel good so the timing was uh 
strangely fortuitous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's got a nice appealing cast. It's it's kind mm-hmm. of a a chronicle of small town life. Yeah, uh, very much uh, so. kind of a little bit of romance, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of human interest. Uh, mm-hmm. That kind of core, you know, the core story is three women and a lifelong friends who open a, kind of a salon, kind of a, a labor of love project. Uh, a lot of side dramas and interesting stuff going on. So, uh, yeah. Congratulations to you as well, Norman. It's yeah, nice well, I know. appreciate you watching the yeah. show. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're not you're not the demographic, so it's really great that you watch the show. <laughs> yeah, well, kind of want again want to get to know your work and and just get well, to know you a little that. bit more. So very good. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and get into our our subject matter. I've already kind of sort of laid a little bit of a, a foundation here. This is a film uh, that was released in uh, November of 1971, at least uh, the, its original release in France. Uh, it did not do real well commercially. There was even a re-edit, apparently, from the first premiere to maybe its broader distribution where about 20, 25 minutes or so were removed just to kind of maybe streamline it a little bit. And uh, even though it got some good reviews and some some poor reviews, Pauline Kael was quite, um, you know, harsh in her assessment of this film but others liked it at the time it didn't seem to catch fire um and maybe there's some reasons for that uh right before he died in 1984 uh Truffaut did restore some of that missing footage back to the uh what's now the official cut of the film and uh I've got posters showing that Janus Films the kind of the forerunner of the Criterion Collection was actually the distributor of this film in the early 1970s. I think 72 is when it came over to the States and kind of did a theatrical run. And uh, it was released on Laserdisc back in 1994, uh, but it's not yet made it to a DVD or Blu-ray. And uh, it's been on the Criterion channel. I think it was on Filmstruck back and maybe even back in the Hulu days. It's been a streaming title of Truffauts that Criterion has offered in that format. But uh, no rumblings that this is going to be hitting the the physical release uh, uh, anytime soon. Um, but let's maybe just kind of do a quick circle around here just for first impressions. We'll go in the same order that we did introductions. Uh, William, what was your kind of opening take and, and impression? Had you seen Two English Girls before this or is this a new discovery for you? I think I took it for granted on the Hulu catalog and the Filmstrip catalog. And it was the first time I saw it was for this podcast. Okay. And okay. um I've always been a very big Truffaut fan since I was, you know, maybe 15 or 16. And mm-hmm. one thing that's been difficult about th- him is that he died so young and left behind a, a pretty manageable filmography to to see all of. And so I do what I can to pace out new Truffaut films because they feel like they're at a bit of a premium. And mm-hmm. this one came at a really nice time and. I think it might be the most painful film I've seen from him. Uh, it it is so much more different than you know, so much diff- more different than like, uh, Jules and Jim and Four Hundred Blows. The things that he's sort of known for, especially when you're getting into cinephilia or if you're like a neophyte to say like Criterion esque catalog mm-hmm. auteur filmmakers, it's. It seems like a lot of his work, you know, beyond the new wave era is under discussed anyway. And in all of the things I've ever seen, it's always underrepresented poorly. I wish we had more. I think that this film deserves home media release. It deserves the full Blu-ray treatment. 
And despite how painful it is to watch and um, how emotionally uh, punishing I, I felt it was in, in a, in a, um, in a deterministic, that's the way it is sort of way. I adored it very much. And mm -hmm. it, this and, and the, and one of the following films he made um, day for night, you know, are remaining, I think two of my favorites, if not my favorites I've seen from Truffaut. Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said uh, this, this, and that may be one of the reasons that it didn't kind of catch fire commercially. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get some other takes on that, and we'll kind of expand those thoughts. Uh, Adam, what's your response to this film? Um, I also really liked it. This is the first time I've watched it, and actually very much like William, this is uh, one that I had found as like an unreleased film you know, by Truffaut, and I wanted to see it back in the Hulu days uh, and never did get around to watching it. And same thing with Filmstruck. Uh, and funnily enough, I was I made a list when Filmstruck went down of everything in my queue so I could potentially add a lot of it back. Uh, so I added this back to my queue in the Criterion channel when it came around. And then after about a year, I was like, oh, I'm never going to actually get to that movie. And I took it out of my queue. So I went looking for it a few weeks ago and I was like, wow, I, I really gave up on this movie. And I, <laughs> I really shouldn't have because I think it's really excellent. Um hearing that there's like three different cuts of the film is really interesting because I do think there are parts of the film that are really assured and beautifully paced uh, and structurally everything just flows wonderfully. And then there are other parts where it feels very choppy. And I think, I, I think just some of that stuff, like just the suddenness of, of Anne coming into, you know, Paris and her personality change and some of the latter half of the film, it feels like there have been some things that have been lost from uh, from it that don't quite match up with that earlier pace of the movie. Um, but also, like William, you know, I loved uh, Truffaut was one of the first foreign filmmakers I ever saw. I saw 400 Blows when I was 15 or 16 and loved it. Um, and I'm pretty glad that I didn't watch this until I was older, because I think this is a much more mature work in terms of like how it's managing the emotions of being in love and just indulging the, the idea that they're feeling tortured, you know, with love and it's not all working out, you know, cause Jules and Jim is very energetic and light. It's working with some very heavy subject matter and that's what make people love about it. It's so breezy and just amazing and just caps captures that vivacity of youth. And this is like a completely different, take on it that like acknowledges much more complex emotions than they ever really get into in jewels and gem i think so. mm -hmm. yeah excellent uh, good, great great insights really really appreciate your thoughts on that and again we'll we'll expand on all that uh let's give norman a shot uh norman you had mentioned that you kind of enjoyed this one a bit more than the touch <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about <laughs> well, and, and and maybe your uh, your uh, uh connection with more, actually. yeah <laughs> I actually, uh, I'm a big Truffaut fan, but I didn't even know about this film and was was uh, somewhat surprised uh, to discover it uh, when you suggested it. Uh, I sat down to watch it uh, and I saw that it was two hours and 20 minutes and change and I thought, oh boy. And yet I found it a very easy, quick watch. I felt like it flew by and I, and I really was um, also fascinated by a lot of the... Um, critical analysis that you sent to mm -hmm. us to uh, mm -hmm. peruse uh, particularly to discover that uh, he made this film when he was 
coming out of a depression. He'd lost his mother and, and also um, uh, the, the death of um, Francois uh, Dorleac um, mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in, in uh, the end of his uh, relationship with Catherine Deneuve. So uh, clearly that really uh, informed a lot of the emotional content of the film. And I thought that was the most striking thing about it was just how uh, it really analyzes the difficulty of love and the difficulty of relationships where you're you're pulled in different directions, both by career, by other personalities, by religion, by your own uh, guilt, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things. I, I felt that he was grappling with here in a, and uh, um, uh, one of you said a moment ago, you know, like the, the maturity of this film, uh, seeing this film at this particular point, I think I, w- I would have had a very different experience of it if I'd seen it when I was in my 20s. Uh, now seeing it uh, in my 60s, I understand it uh, in, in a very deep way, I think. Um, I, I thought it was great, actually. I thought that um, uh, I was trying to imagine what were the 25 minutes that were cut out. And I'm not sure where those are, but I do agree uh, with Adam that there's there's some places where it does feel like it was put back together in a, in a somewhat choppy manner. The score, I felt, got a little repetitive, particularly in the, the second half of it, uh, and, and didn't really support the story as fully as it might have. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's, a, curious, it's a curious thing to, to see a film that, that, that didn't get a, a positive response. That, and apparently he was quite wounded by that from what I read. He mm-hmm. was quite wounded by the response to the film. So um, it's, it's uh, yeah. My, my experience of it was very, very positive, actually. I, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of texture. Uh, there's a lot of nuance. Uh, there's a, certainly a very literary quality to this. I mean, it's it pretty obvious. I mean, there's voiceover narration. Uh, you know, the opening credits are you know kind of focusing on this book that it was adapted from. Uh, Truffaut himself functions as the narrator, and so you you do get a sense that this was a, a project that he invested in personally and and very deeply and uh, we talked about you know norman you referenced the depression that he was coming out of i mean this is depression to the point of hospitalization Mm -hmm. Uh, he was uh, he was turning 40 i believe at that time and as i as i sort of reflected on that i i kind of thought you know is this a situation where the director is kind of uh you know aging and maturing at a rate that's a little bit maybe different than his core audience. You know, he's, he's yeah. probably a director who's still attracting a lot of youthful viewers, you know, people who maybe at the, at the time had discovered Jules and Jim more on the revival repertory circuit than when it was originally released in 1961. So uh, you've got all the, you know, the youth revolution of the late sixties, early seventies and uh, being the, and this film was marketed uh, uh, a new film by Truffaut, from based on a novel by the author of Jules and Jim. So if you think, oh, hey, this is kind of like the sequel of Jules and Jim or kind of, oh, rather than, uh, you know, two men who love one woman, this is two women who love one man, but it's just going to be kind of riffing on those same those same uh, kind of energies. That That's not at all what you get here. And so if you came in thinking this is Jules and Jim Redux, you're going to walk away pretty disappointed. Uh, I think we've, we've all kind of touched on that, that this is a a film with kind of a, a gravity, a, a weightiness to it that uh, in some ways feels maybe even a little bit more 
true to life, a little bit more authentic. Uh, you know, my own response to Jules and Jim, uh, discovering it actually as an, an older, mature man myself, I didn't watch it till I was probably in my late 40s, early 50s. Um, I was like, you know, that's not exactly how love functions. You know, two guys uh-huh. just kind of trading the woman back and forth and, oh, she's done with me, but you can have her now. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it's like I, I didn't really experience much of that in my life. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen. And when I learned subsequently that this was based on a, an actual true life memoir, it's like, well, I guess, you know, that, that can that can happen. I just didn't well, match also, my experience. Right. Go ahead. The other The other thing that I think is fascinating about the film is the, idea of cultures clashing the, uh-huh. the english sensibility coming up against the french sensibility and in, in, in the interaction of the of the women with um with him uh the way that it examines that because i think that's a big part of the story as well i mean yes absolutely Michael. yeah these two very proper english young women being raised by a, a pretty observant mother who's keeping a very close eye on things there's a kind of the the somewhat puritanical values that have shaped them. Uh, the two women themselves kind of diverge uh, as they go through life. Uh, you know, but but the basic point being here is that uh, Jules and Jim maybe is a bit more of a, of a fantasy, and, and this seems a little bit more grounded in, in the realities of uh, the complexities of, of love, of romance, of desire, of jealousy, of rivalry. Uh, the real anguish that feeling strongly for someone when real life obstacles stand in the way of our relationships, you know, how, how we adapt to that and how it kind of, you know, takes the wind out of our sails or worse. So uh, would anybody want to give kind of a summary or maybe just kind of a, a quick recap? I mean, the, the story is, is, is pretty simple. I'll give somebody a chance to kind of, you know, capsulize uh, the, the plot here so we can start picking it apart. Sure. Um, there's a young man. He's French. His name is Claude. He's played by Jean-Pierre Léon, so we all know what he looks like. Through his mother, he meets a young girl named Anne, who is the daughter of a friend of his mother. And he ends up staying with Anne and sister Muriel and their mother in Wales. A very picturesque spot away from the big city, by the water. And the three of them engage in beginnings of this new friendship uh, during which Anne is trying to set Claude up with what she believes is her much superior, much more intellectual sister, Muriel. Um, through this, they're, they seem almost destined to be a couple, almost against their wills, almost as if the destiny as revealed to them by their parents, um, that this is something that is feared propels them towards trying to make it happen, and they are then separated. Over the course of seven years, various ins and outs of these three characters uh, proceed as Anne meets up with Claude in Paris, and then returns back, and then he meets someone else, and then they meet up again. And you've, like it's been said, a very novelistic and episodic um, second half of the seven years that led from their very fateful time sharing the same floor of the same country house. 
Yeah, and and there's kind of an idyllic beginning. And again, maybe getting back to how Norman was invited to be a guest on this episode, um, knowing of your work, you know the the you know the teen dramas, the romantic comedy aspect um, of of the work that you've done for television, Norman. Uh, I know you contacted me saying you were kind of just interested in getting back on the podcast. Were there any openings coming up? And as I looked ahead, it's like, oh, two English girls. Well, he kind of does these kind of <laughs> series oriented towards women, and and you know, just looking at the promotional material, the the women in their nice Edwardian garb and all of that. So yeah. this is probably a a light, frivolous romantic comedy with the Truffaut touch or whatever. I yeah, wasn't quite expecting right. it to have the gut punch aspect that we we did find. Yeah, go ahead. But it's perfect for me because I yeah. am very much interested in. I'm a I'm a woman's director. Uh, that's pretty much um, the the preponderance of my career and i'm uh i'm fascinated therefore by the psychology of women and uh their the way that they're portrayed on film and and i do think it's a it's a very interesting analysis of the the psychology of both the sisters yeah and apparently the 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 real life experience that this author was uh, uh henry pierre roche is that roche is that his name um this probably was more close to his actual lived experience that he may have been the man kind of at the center of a romantic triangle and and in writing his novel Jules and Jim which he wrote in his like you know mid 70s uh, you know he had been a kind of an art dealer and collector apparently he was famous for, as the guy who connected Pablo Picasso and Gertrude Stein that's a pretty nice little claim to fame right there um, but in in writing Jules and Jimmy kind of inverted those gender roles and uh, you know you we can even get into a little bit of comparison about the dynamics between uh, that story um, and and this one here whether it was with two particular English sisters that he had this uh, triangle with, I'm not really sure, but uh, but it is. There's just kind of this this overarching tragic element here that I think is 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 pretty profound, pretty impressive, uh, but maybe is more ideally suited to the kind of movie watching experience that I think we all participated in, which is more kind of a. a uh, a reflective study of the film and the story. This is not exactly uh, a great night out in the town. Take your take your partner out on a date and and go check out the latest Truffaut. Now, you know, for some relationships that might be you know a workable thing, but I I don't know that this is the the mainstream mass audience appeal type of film that maybe people might have been expecting from him at this time as he was moving into different territory than perhaps the, the mainstream audience was looking for him to provide. Well, the, the triangle is a the classic dramatic structure in a lot of romantic dramas. And, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting to see something that's treated in, in almost like this very grounded way. And yet it's this costume piece. So that gives you a certain kind of ironic distance from it, but mm-hmm. it's um, it's definitely a staple of most of the drama that I work on anyway, uh, constantly putting people in these situations where there's some yeah. competition or some type of, of draw between different people. And yet it's very, it's very psychologically acute. And I can't help but think that it's really strongly influenced by his, um, uh, by his uh, relationships with uh, 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 Doliak and, uh, and, and Dronov. You know, I think that, mm-hmm. um, his relationship with those two women was what he was working out here 
on some on some level because apparently the one sister died and then um, uh, Catherine Deneuve broke up with him shortly before this film. I don't know if it's shortly before, but before this. Nineteen seventy, I think, is when their relationship ended. So I, I, I yeah. think it had to be right on the, you know, right on the the cusp of him working on this particular work. And I, I think, and this... the loss, and the loss of his mother as well. Yeah, so right, the fact right. That all of those themes are are explored in this movie, and you feel that. And I think that's one of the things that I that I really like about the film, as opposed to, you know, it's interesting because. Um, uh, the, the the film that we talked about before, Bergman's The Touch, was also uh, a, a film about the, the clash of cultures. Um, but this is a much more successful film for me, and I feel mm-hmm. that there's much more a, a greater sense of um, uh, the um, the groundedness of it really played much better for me. And both of them, both The Touch and this film, were were, were somewhat autobiographical in nature, at least in terms of the emotional story that was being told so it's kind of fascinating to see this film and be talking to you about it yeah yeah let's get into that that clash of cultures um the the english uh sisters uh who kind of bring this slightly exotic young frenchman into their household he's kind of brought in as a tutor you know he's going to help these uh, girls uh practice their their french (laughs) and and it's it actually is i i really enjoyed the the juxtaposition of English language and French throughout the film. Uh, if you're watching it on the channel, you will not get the subtitles when they're speaking in English. You'll only get the subtitles in the French. William is kind of a, as a, a language buff. Oh, how, how did you like, or what, what were your thoughts just about that whole kind of interplay between the, you know, English speaking, French speaking, because everybody kind of has their turn kind of speaking in the other tongue. There, right. It's, it's quite crucial, isn't it? And, uh, yeah. I, I always love films that are nearly bilingual. This one doesn't get close to half and half, but there is considerable amount of English text in it. And obviously, I think the, the most crucial aspect there is um, that the two daughters speak French. Uh, additionally, you know, the, the neighbor speaks some very bad French and the mother speaks French, <laughs> which makes sense because, yeah. you know, she's been friends with uh, Claude's French mom for years and years and years. But these two daughters who, who presumably have just been learning French from their mother um, and who learned French, or at least as far as the film depicts, they learned it for the film. They hadn't spoken French before and were not really film actresses too much anyway. So we were able to probably be a bit more flexible with that, given the fact that they could cut. And there's also a spot where I'm guaranteeing you that uh, someone is reading a cue card. Not that I think it diminishes the effect of the scene, but I can see that the eyes are reading. And I almost like it more because of that. But the thing that (laughs) is powerful is the gradual adjustment that some characters make, really really Anne and Muriel, into speaking French. There are times when they're in front of Claude and they're speaking French, even though it seems like they're having a private conversation. Or there are times when Muriel is alone and is speaking French anyway, or she's, I mean, she's writing her letters in French, but her diary is in French because really they're all to Claude. Even the things she's never going to send or never going to share with him, um, she gets to a point where much of her life seems to be her being torn apart to the point where when um, Muriel speaks in English, I often find it feels more unnatural. Hmm. And there's a scene that's also mentioned by Michael Klein in his, his review that you shared, which is contemporaneous to the film, 
about a scene which is quite awkward where she has the Bronte-esque moment where she's saying, everything I have is yours. Uh, it's like it's like that one scene alone is meant to depict that she's come around to the idea of marrying him. Mm-hmm. And the scene cuts off and I went, well, that must be one of the scenes that you know got shoved back in and they didn't have enough frames. But no, that scene was in 1972. So this is, uh, it goes all the way back. But that scene feels so unnatural or when she runs in the house and says, um, I'm always ugly when I'm mad or like I, that she has this very awkward line in the mirror and it just strikes you as a, a, a coming of age drama for her and the mm-hmm. way that her character opens herself up of this sort of puritanical character, as she says herself, the more religious of the two, the one who quotes the Bible gains this worldlier sort of approach uh, to her entire existence, which to me was always there. And if it was there for any one reason, it's through the inherent otherness and uh, mysteriousness that is her eye um, condition, which requires that she wear either gauze over her eyes or even better, incredibly stylish stylish sunglasses. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the costumes in this film show that um, Muriel is a really cool worldly person, even if the character sometimes wants to reject um, a certain type of pragmatism in, in lieu of um, a more religious transcendence and mm-hmm. ecstasy. So I think that there's an interesting d- d- um, dynamic between her use of French in particular, especially when she's by herself soliloquizing or writing a letter that shows how she's inhabiting a different culture or a different attitude than, than her Welsh country upbringing. Adam, let, let me hear some of your thoughts on just the, the, the contrasts and the connections of these two sisters. Uh, you know, I was struck by Anne's apparent devotion because you can, you can already feel that there's some attraction uh, between her and Claude at the very beginning, and yet she's really intent on connecting Claude with her younger sister. And I think, William, I think it was you who mentioned her sense of her younger sister's superiority to her. Um, but it, I don't know, I'm just kind of, just want to kind of hear your thoughts a little bit on, on the dynamics between those, those you know, two English girls, you know, the, the characters uh, referred to in the title. Um, yeah. I think what William was talking about with costumes is like one of the, the keys to all the characters in the films, but especially to the sisters. Uh, Cause as we see them there in the, you know, the beginning, the first couple of reels of the movie, they're in Wales. They're almost always wearing very similar things, you know, white blouses and like tan skirts. But Anne has these large, colorful bows that she also wears. And you, you kind of see it foreshadowing from the very early on, just in the costumes, that Anne just has these little splashes of color and accents that set her as just a little bit more free, a little bit more wild than Mm -hmm. like her sister. And you'll see it in their hairstyles too. Like when uh, Muriel decides to like reject cloud, like you see her pin her hair up in like a very kind of a Bergman type of a, like a hairdo where it's kind of very severe and pulled back. And you also notice that like in those first, you know, few scenes in Wales, like cloud is always uh, wearing color. He's got like a red sweater on. He's often the source of the color in the scenes when they're just wearing like, you know, brown and white. But then when Anne comes to Paris, she starts uh, gradually like, well, the first time we see her, really, she's wearing like uh, like that blue blouse and Cloud puts his hand on her dress and everything because she's like 
more available now that she's become an artist. But every mm -hmm. scene after that that you see, she is just dressed in exquisite colors all the time. And you see Muriel retains uh, the very washed out, pale, like pastel kind of colors, if she has any at all, mostly still staying with just the white theme and the pulled back hair. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Truffaut's using that palette uh, constantly to tell us things about the sisters' relationship to each other, how they're drifting apart. You know, they're very similar at the beginning. And then you see that, you know, visually the way that they've like separated. And I, I thought that was maybe one of the best things that the, the film did was the way it handled all the developments that are happening in the plot of the story you see reflected in what this they're choosing to wear as well, uh, which is also really true to life because, you know, like uh, women change their hair when they're upset. And, <laughs> and um, my wife <laughs> likes to go shopping at Macy's when she, mm -hmm. uh, you know, needs to get something new. And she used to be when she was working at a firm, she would have a bad day. She'd be like, yeah, I, I stopped and I went shopping when I came home, when on my hey, way home. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> is, Retail therapy. I was, it's, like, it's I was a... like that great i'm glad that you did <laughs> yeah yeah all things considered that's the mm -hmm. most efficient solution to the to yeah. the problem yeah yeah, yeah I, I i really did find it was very very interesting to to watch the character development and this is definitely one of those movies where you really can kind of chart the 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 progress if you will mm -hmm. the, the evolution of of characters and i really did enjoy that myself uh as we see kind of Anne come into her own as this kind of uh, a little bit more worldly, a little bit more sensual woman, you know, mm -hmm. certainly a lot more in comparison to her sister, who's really kind of a, a tormented soul. Uh, sad to say, uh, she's she's locked up in a lot of repression, a lot of guilt. She kind of falls in with a group that kind of reinforces all of those negative sort of messages about herself sexuality that she's internalized and uh it it really complicates these the the possibilities of of a happy relationship with uh, two people who seem to genuinely and and truly love each other i'm talking about claude and muriel uh, mm -hmm. but because claude also has this attraction to uh and and he's you know he's a young man kind of feeling it and he's having relationships with other women during this kind of a very uh, kind of patriarchal year of enforced exile, you know, to test the purity of their of their love and their de devotion to each other. Uh, this kind of compromised solution. The uh, the the mother of the of the girls is not quite so favorable to the idea that Claude would would become the husband. Um, perhaps it's because of ethnic prejudice between English and and French, or maybe she just senses something in Claude's character that he's just a little bit too loose and freewheeling. I mean, he is an artist after all, and you know, we know about all artists, right? Uh, from, from that perspective. So she doesn't quite see him as, as good husband material, although certainly suitable as a tutor and perhaps even as a guest for the summer. But she recognizes that maybe things have gotten or are, are about to get a little bit out of hand. But yeah, so you've got all these complicated pressures about what's an acceptable or a proper relationship according to the social order of things versus where do our emotions, our passions and our desires lead us um, as really uh, English and European society was, was going through sort of a reevaluation of, of all those traditional values uh, as of course has been the case so many other times over the decades since. 
Um, yeah. Any other thoughts just kind of on, on those dynamics? Yeah. Go ahead. I, I had a few thoughts on that. I mean, I think uh, like one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, from the very beginning, we kind of see that cloud is uh, more of an aristocrat, which he like, you know, confirms throughout the movie, but like when he talks about, I went to the brothel and it was only for officers, you know, yes. like in that time, like if you were an officer, you were an aristocrat and, you know, also like, Oh, I don't have any money except for you know, the three, you know, rental properties. My father left me in Paris. Um, <laughs> right, right. And, oh, I totally will just support my lifestyle. Just I'm writing articles about art galleries. Yeah. Not, not from rent. Um, <laughs> so he's very much of an aristocrat and, I would say the the mother and the sisters are less aristocratic, but they're still landed gentry. Like they're living that lifestyle because they're collecting rent from for the various lands that they own. But they're not so impoverished, but they don't have a lot of servants around. Uh, like they see them doing laundry themselves rather than servants, which would be very odd then. And so the other thing connecting them is both. Cloud's mother and the girl's mothers, uh, their husbands died early, and that's mm -hmm. why they're friends. And both of them chose not to remarry, and both of those women probably chose not to remarry because the only way a woman could have any say in how her life was run was if she was a widow. Any of the, yeah. if they chose to remarry, they would have no more say in their life or in their children's lives or anything. They lose all agency, all power. And I think. Part of what we see mm. with like that iconic scene with Muriel on the windswept mountain, you know, doing the the Bronte thing, like, oh, I adore you. Everything I have is yours, except what you ask of me is Muriel knows that if she gets if she marries, she loses not just her virginity, but she loses her freedom. She loses her sister. She loses her mother. She becomes a possession of cloud and that there's, you know, unless he dies, there's really nothing that's ever going to change that in her life. So for as, as tightly connected as the sisters are, I mean, I think, you know, just based on other literature and like things that we know about the time period, part of the reason she would reject him is because she wants to still have a sister. She wants to still have a mother. She doesn't want to give up all of that life just to get married. Uh, yeah. You know, and she has a lot of other reasonable fears and ignorances about, you know, sex and everything else that we see later that give her, you know, the various complexes she has. But I think that's almost less significant than those whole social dynamics that, allow them to have so much freedom in that the beginning of the movie and that they're worried about losing, you know, it's part, it's the same reason why like Anne isn't really interested in marrying either because she, she kind of discovers the boundaries of, of her freedoms in a way. Like she just keeps stretching to see more and more like, you know, what she can do with her life. Yeah, no, those are really excellent insights. I, and, and yeah, I, I really was kind of probably myself just focusing more on, uh, Muriel's repression and her fear of sexuality and, and the religious component and all of that. But I think your kind of unpacking of the relatively limited options that, that women had of remaining independent and autonomous and self-determining in this era uh, are, to me, yeah, it's a kind of a discovering a kind of a new new angle on this film. So, yeah, thanks for sharing. But, but that. she does marry at the end. Yeah, she, she marries does, another eventually. guy. Mm -hmm. And and I think mm -hmm. I think that the, I see it a little bit differently. I see it as that she ultimately understands that he will never be the type of person that will make her comfortable. 
that mm-hmm. she, she she is very self-aware by the end of the movie. And the speech that she gives him when she's saying goodbye, where she basically says, like, I love you, and I, therefore I don't want to change you, and I can't be happy with the person that you are. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's essentially yeah. what she says. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a, a great sense of self-awareness, and I think that that's that's one of the things that I think is one of the most complicated aspects of 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 uh, romantic love is that we fall in love with somebody because of who they are, and then we immediately want to change them. Yeah, and it's a <laughs> yeah. it's a very um, it's a very mature point of view to get to where you realize like, Oh, the very thing that attracted me about this person was this quality of a certain type of, um, uh, in, in this case, I think she was attracted by a certain, uh, uh, liberation that he represented that she never ultimately would be able to feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And she comes to that conclusion and, and I think that that's one of the things that is so powerful to me about the film is the, the idea of somebody saying, and I recognize this can never work out because I've got to go find some guy who's going to just make me feel comfortable in the world I've created for myself. And that's the ultimate tragedy is that there isn't a, a, an ability to go, oh, well, this person is different from, from me. And so they compliment me in a way. And as long as I can learn to embrace that quality of difference, there, there's the real possibility for a relationship. But what most of us do, and I think most of us, I really do believe this about human nature, is we we want something that's going to reinforce the uh, neuroses that we carry with us. <laughs> and yes, uh, I, yeah, I think yeah. that it's very, very hard to get to a place. It takes an enormous amount of self-awareness to get to a place where where you can really allow another person to be different. And he is a bohemian. And that's why he and Anne have a easier, more comfortable relationship. Even their, even their sexual experience is almost cozy as opposed to violent and, and um, dramatic mm-hmm. as it is with Muriel. Uh, there's, there's a sense in which when they go off for their little sojourn in the cabin, they're, they're cozy with one another. It's sweet. It's fun. It's, it's, it, to me, that was almost the, the, the most um, kind mm-hmm. of, uh, jovial part of the movie was that part where they were uh, spending time in that cabin and just contrast the two sexual experiences that he has with the two women. One of them is so intense and so passionate, and yet they're so completely different from one another and always will be. Mm -hmm. And she recognizes that and she says, therefore, we can't go forward. And then there's this little coda about, you know, I think I'm pregnant because I really want to believe that it's workable, but I don't think it's workable. And, and I, <laughs> yeah. I think that that's a, that, kind of neurosis right there. I'm going to have your baby. Oh, actually, no, not. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, and, right. and I just I, that 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 idea of, you know, two different, you know, the other thing I wish I knew French. I wish I was. I was better um, at understanding French because I do believe that even the French language is almost a different way of thinking than English. It's just the way you structure thoughts is different. And William, you can probably speak to that more than I can uh, since you're into languages. But it just feels to me that that's an aspect of it, too. It's just that there's a kind of almost... um, um, bohemian nature that's just built into the French sensibility that if you come from a real puritanical and she does identify herself as a puritan you know a puritanical english sensibility it's it's almost just like a bridge too far they just are not going to be able to to make that happen and and that's one of the things that's so bittersweet about the movie i think is that that final speech where she gives where you know she says i love you therefore i don't want to change you 
but I also know myself well enough that I, I don't think that I can, mm-hmm. that I can live with this. Right. Whether that's her own personal preference or whether it's the kind of constructs that surround her in society. I mean, yeah, she can have her own sort of fantasy of who she loves and who she'd like to be with, but on all practical terms, it, this just ain't going to work because all the other people in my life will not <laughs> allow it to happen. And I'm, I can't sacrifice all of my other relationships for my security just for this uh, romantic whim, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and those are very real. I think whether you relate to this cultural dynamic or not, many, many people have found themselves in those kind of stuck impossible situations where there's a real strong attraction but it just makes no sense on any kind of a, a practical level if you will and and so how do you how do you resolve that how do you work through yeah those, i mean it's, she's an introvert yeah. she's an yeah. introvert she's set up as an introvert she stays in her room she likes to read she likes to just be with herself she's uh, even the whole masturbatory uh, sequence mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. you know the the words of an introvert whereas he's set up from the very beginning of the movie as an extrovert you know he's mm-hmm. out on the monkey bars he's with people he's constantly interacting he he, he he's he's physical in a way that she that she is uh, more restrained. And it's it's not that it would be impossible, but people have to be willing to really make that leap. I mean, I, I come yeah. from a, a real Jungian point of view about these things. And, you know, there's, 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 great, there's great growth to be had in connecting to that which is different from yourself. And yet that takes an enormous amount of courage that ultimately neither one of them really has. You yeah. know, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think that if they had stayed together, I don't think that would have been a, ha- a happy marriage. I don't think that that would have worked no. out. Well, you know, when she when she sends him her confession, what does he do? He turns around and publishes it, <laughs> sells it on the street. I mean, wow, that's yeah, that's a pretty clear sign of incompatibility right there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I also think that that final speech is amazing, and hearing the piece that Norman quoted from it reminded me of like early on when uh, Muriel gives her first rejection letter to Cloud. One of the things she says is like, you never really courted me. You managed to make me to be forced to love you. And I, I thought at the mm-hmm. time I was like, that is such an incisive, almost vicious and completely accurate depiction of those kind of youthful love affairs of like, you know, when people are in love with and being in love and then the way like a lot of guys and, you know, I've done this in the past too, just try, try too hard. And it just puts girls in, in a possible position. And I was like, when I heard that line, I was like, I just sat up. And then the way it like their relationship keeps running along those different lines where they're just never going to be compatible with what each other needs. And they have just a series of like incredible, like breakup letters, basically, since it's all letters, like there's a point later on where like Claude's has written a letter to Muriel. He hasn't sent it yet. And he has his mother read it and Truffaut trucks into her face as she's reading it and you just see her reading it and her face is like kind of falling it as she's like reading it aloud and he's saying these like very like blunt things like you oh you must be relieved i have other lady friends and whatnot and uh you can just see the mother is just like oh my god i can't believe you're doing this and then she gathers herself and says well that's good send it (laughs) because it's like what she wants there's so much going on with that little stuff but they they really go at each other that there's no you know verbal shouting fights you know in this picture but the 
the fights they kind of have like through, you know, just letters is really unique and uh, really amazing to see. And, and very interesting to see how it, those letters are portrayed differently as like the film develops, you know, whether it's like, uh, I think we mentioned earlier the scene where Muriel's walking down the street, talking to herself in French because it's as if it's a letter, but it's not yet a letter. It's like, we're just seeing kind of a, almost like a love madness for her, but it's also, that's like the bridge from the very first letter writing we see where we see pictures, shots of them, like, you know, literally writing huge letters onto like a piece of paper. And so that shot of her narrating to herself walking down the street is like a bridge then to those very like iconic, like straight to camera reading like the, the letters straight into the camera. Like it's like upping the intensity and getting us closer and closer into them, you know, each time, uh, you know, like they've kind of like gone from being very distant to being very intimate by the end, just in visually how we're like drawn into it. And I think it ups the dramatics of everything without stylistically changing everything to be very, uh, Mm. you know, you're not having that, that, those physical like shouting confrontations. Uh, so like you never break out of that and it does it. It's a very clever and unique. And I thought it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Everything is done with a, a quality of restraint and decorum, you know, that uh, we're not going to just shred each other, but we're going mm-hmm. to get the message across in ways that you have all that devastating emotional impact. Uh, it just may be a little less direct or a little less in your face. Yeah, actually, that reminds me what you just said. Like the very first thing I noticed about the movie was uh, Jean-Pierre Léaud's comportment as he's Mm -hmm. just carrying himself as he's walking through scenes. Like he's got just like, like a rod of steel down his backbone. He's carrying himself like an aristocrat. He's moving elegantly. And, you know, we've seen Léaud in so many different movies and he is uh, usually like a ball of energy. Uh, and so to see him doing that full body acting where like, he's completely a different person just in the way he reaches for a pen or stands up or walks across the screen. And I was just like, wow, this is like one of his best performances. I've never seen him do anything like this. And it's amazing. He's, he's just constantly alert. You can just tell he's, Mm -hmm. he's kind of almost like a prowler, just kind of scoping the joint wherever he goes. And I, and I think that is an interesting uh, observation as well. He's this, he's an interloper, you know, he's a Frenchman who's been kind of ushered in because of this tutorial aspect and the family friendship into these quarters where a man like him would rarely, if ever, be allowed to just stroll freely. And and I, I do wonder, you know, is there a a critique about uh, kind of the, the predatory male who's almost taking advantage of these two somewhat deprived and isolated and overly sheltered young women? The, the, the point you made about uh, Muriel saying, you forced me to love you. I mean, he's just kind of coming in with all of his tricks, with all the things that he's lived, learned living his mm-hmm. bohemian way of life and saying, okay, let me just kind of blow this girl out of the water. I mean, he's not going to use that kind of language, but th- that's kind of what he's doing. He's he's just kind of showing all his cards, showing these women something that they've never really encountered before, both the touch of the exotic and just kind of his masculine presence, uh, his his mannerisms, his affect, all of that. 
And, uh, and there's a certain underlying confidence he has that it's inevitable. They're, they're going to fall for me and, and I'll have my way. So, so how much of this is a true love for Muriel versus, you know, it's just one of those kind of conquest type of goals where he's like, okay, I want to, I want to get both of these gals. And, and I mean, is, is that something that's going on here uh, or is, is he truly loving these women or is he sort of convinced himself on his terms that he loves them enough to justify using the relationships to his own erotic advantage. Well, I think that love is complicated and I think yeah. that love includes <laughs> all kinds of manipulations that go mm-hmm. on. And, and I feel like that through the first part of the movie, he's somewhat manipulated by Anne. I think that there's almost a natural expectation that he and Anne are going to become involved. And Anne is kind of like, no, no, I want you to like pay attention to my sister. And in some ways, Anne and, 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 Claude are, are almost too similar. That's why their relationship really doesn't work. I mean, she's into kind of moving around playing the field as well, you know, by the time that she gets to Paris. And I, I think that um, that part of the story is really fascinating to me too, because there there's never the passion in that relationship, but there's a lot more gamesmanship. There's a lot more sense of, well, you know, I, I want you to be in this open relationship with me, but I don't really want you to be in this open relationship with me. I don't really want you going off with these other guys. And mm-hmm. I found that really fascinating as well. And and uh, the the idea of the two of them representing two very different choices. The and two sisters the end, you mean here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and then in the end, he's alone. And mm-hmm. he, 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 you know, the, the idea of not having the courage to really work at that aspect of the difficulty in a relationship that really challenge you, challenges you to grow as an individual uh, ultimately leaves him in you know, a situation where he's by himself. I don't know the history of the guy who wrote the novels, so I don't know where he landed in that whole game of relationships, but Truffaut was clearly wrestling with that, with the end of his relationship with Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, and, yeah. And in, the, in the death of her sister. So on some level, and even from what I understand, from what I read of the material that you sent, uh, Anne's death wasn't in the book. Right. Uh, no, he, it, he innovated that. that in, in the yeah. book, Anne was married and established yeah. and and it was Claude who was the, the, the loner. The, the two sisters eventually married presumably more conventional types of men and lived more conventional types of lives after they'd kind of sown their oats uh, in their respective ways. Yeah, but I find that a fascinating idea that, you know, okay, here's this one woman who is much more um, kind of in in sync with the kind of life I like to live. You know, we're both kind of arty. We both kind of uh, uh, have this uh, propensity towards being a little more open-minded. Yeah, spontaneous and all that, right? (laughs) Yeah, versus this woman who clearly has very strong opinions, who exists in her own world, who who kind of really attracts me in a deeper way. But I'm I'm fascinated by what you guys think about the, 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 the whole beginning of the movie where Anne is basically saying... I want you to be in a relationship with my sister. You know, yeah, she's, yeah. she's pushing that on him. You know, mm. it, like I almost felt like, did he really love her, or did he just, did he just kind of bow to this pressure that he was feeling? 
Yeah, is Anne doing some kind of strange altruism? You know, like because she's the older sister, and and even if you think about the traditional order of things, she's the one who's entitled to a, a husband first, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to work? And yet <laughs> she's kind of you know so this and 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 uh, Claude and Anne are the same age, which maybe the idea is that women are supposed to marry men somewhat older than themselves. I don't know. I, I'm not really sure. I can get into that level of speculation, but it is it is curious to me why Anne was was so intent on hooking up Claude with with her younger sister, uh, other than just the fact that she sees her sister as this really you know outstanding specimen or whatever. Um, but but it could be again sort of that sort of self serving sense. Well, I'm I'm doing this noble thing on behalf of my sister when maybe she sees Claude as more of an opportunity for her to break out of the cloistered environment. Um, she's already got her own sense of what she wants to do, but there's going to be a process that she has to go through before she can just break out and live life on her own terms. And so Claude is kind of a, a gateway to liberation. In, in that or sense. maybe, and I'm just, this idea is just coming to me, but maybe there's some, you know, you, she loves her sister. She sees her sister's got some problems, you know, some developmental problems. And it's kind of like, yeah, so maybe there's even a version of it where it's kind of like, maybe this guy can really help my sister get out yeah. of this weird neurotic um, <laughs> place that she's in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think we see from the beginning that that Anne is interested in Cloud. And it's almost like she is pushing him towards Muriel because she's interested in him, but she knows she doesn't want everybody to push them together. Because I think if she had expressed interest in Cloud and, you know, her mother and her sister would and would have both been saying, you know, like, oh, you need to to marry him. I mean, I think that's part of why like she showed up in Paris in the first place is these two women friends the mothers wanted to put their children together and see what would happen uh in some respect and Mm -hmm. uh so i think she is a little bit in putting it on muriel is trying to do her own little maneuver of uh of not just being pushed around uh, with into an arranged marriage uh and so she does it to her sister instead, which is insightful, I think. That's, yeah. And, no, yeah, the, the whole idea of dodging the trap uh-huh. of arranged marriages, another really big consideration for, for women of a certain independent streak in this era. Yeah, a yeah, great and, and I think uh, it's so funny. I remember, because I watched, well, I, I tried to watch it all again last night and I fell asleep uh, a second time. <laughs> but when I was watching it the first time, uh, and we're in those first couple of like, you know, 40 minutes in Wales or first hour in Wales or whatever it is. Uh, it really does feel like it's cloud and, and falling in love slowly. Like, you know, the, everything is staged that way. And then, you know, and just keeps saying, uh, oh, once I take off my blindfold, you know, you're, you're like, my sister takes off her blindfold. You'll really love her. And then all of a sudden, uh, like it's a, it's a very sudden thing and it doesn't feel natural and it's abrupt and it's weird that it suddenly shifts just to Muriel. You don't really buy it or believe it. And I think mm-hmm. it's only when you come back to it the second time, kind of uh, knowing more about Muriel that like you get, a, you, you start to accept it more like, cause you know, they're going to have this big passionate love affair, but all of the passion is in the back half of the, the film between them. Uh, so you don't, 
you're you're denied all of those like passionate moments in the first part. It's Anne and Cloud that have the little kiss, you know, and when they go, she throws pebbles at his window and they go on a midnight walk uh, and uh, together. Uh, there's all of these signals that it's Anne and Cloud and then they, they pull the rug out from under you. And I think it's very frustrating for the viewer to not understand why what you're you're clearly being told is going to happen. Oh, oh, actually, it's this other thing. You don't get where it's going. Though I did notice the second time around that midnight walk shot of Anne and Cloud where they, they go on a stroll and have a conversation uh, is repeated like 15 minutes later between like Muriel and, mm-hmm. you know, Cloud. And they completely, uh, he, he like, you know, it's set on like the same dolly tracks and it's basically going you know, the set has been slightly restaged, so it feels like a different night. Uh, but it's just ex- almost exactly the same shot, but they're having very different conversations. And watching it the second time, you realize that that conversation with Muriel, like that's like a, a moment where it clicks for Cloud, like the way she's talking to him and they're going back and forth. It's much more uh, intellectually intense than like, the, you know, what they he and Anne were talking about. Um, and I, I was like, ah, that's like really like a key moment. I know Truffaut loves doing those repetitions where you mm-hmm. hear something like in day for night with all of the dream sequences, like each one like feeds you is kind of similar, but they feed you a little bit different information each time. And the second time around you watch the movie, it's just like, it all like clicks together better. Uh, and I think that's true for this one too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I in, interesting thoughts. I, I kind of see Claude's attraction to Anne as more on a kind of a sensual uh, aesthetic level, uh, whereas his attraction to Muriel being much more almost like a challenge, like on an intellectual or spiritual level, because she is more um, abstract, more maybe unobtainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an attraction that's just generated by the. Again, back to that idea of the conquest. It's like, can he can he break through the barriers or the boundaries that are uh, a lot more uh, intact and a lot more rigid than mm-hmm. uh, he perceives with Anne? So, yeah, really fascinating. Um, well, I'm also well, noted. Go ahead. I, I think what yeah. what has occurred to me in these last minutes is that yeah, the focus of the film, maybe on the second time through too. But the focus of the film for me is Muriel and that in a lot of a way, it's Stacey Tenditer's movie as Muriel. I think that her performance is the most compelling for me. Uh, I think she obviously commands the screen more than anybody in that she has multiple direct address monologues um, that are quite, it's almost surreal in a way. There's a lot of strange surreality in this otherwise quite grounded film, even just in the way that certain almost subliminally short scenes um, kind of uh, affect your um, balance. There's, there's, there's so much, there's so many things that can vaguely disorient you during this film. But the thing that disorients me more than anything is getting inside the head of Muriel. And mm-hmm. when you compare Muriel's love for Claude to Claude's love for Muriel, there's almost no, no comparison because even if she knows very little about him and even if his love for her began by staring at an empty plate across the table and just being fed information about someone he didn't know yet. He knew there was a fascination there and she grew more fascinating with time, but it's not really until his mother or sorry, her mother, Muriel's mother says now about this possible marriage and 
she has this conversation with him where they say, go, go live next door and we'll have to figure this out. The realization that she might love him for him is depicted in the film as being this big event. as like the, the big turning point for him that changed his whole outlook to the point that he immediately proposes marriage and that he is acting as sort of a vessel either for Rocher and Truffaut, but also for the audience as interpreters or reactor, reactor, reactors to Muriel's incredible love, which involves her hearing that, you know, hearing that he uh, was with her sister, she is physically sick. And well, I guess the incredible, incredible physical viscerality that I think is eventually sort of set up in the coup that the film makes that is her big monologue about her youthful masturbation, which in modern eyes doesn't seem, you know, this like this particularly dramatic or traumatic thing to bring up, but in her particularly strict upbringing it is. And it's almost as if the culmination of her sexual repression and upbringing and everything that's prevented her from being able to express her incredible Brontean love is uh, culminated when they finally have sex with each other, which, um, feels like more her experience than his. And despite the, the fact that, you know, the next day he's wondering why is she leaving? You can almost read it as because that experience was complete. She does say later, nothing could top that evening in Calais. So that for her, the her love for him, regardless of whether or not it's deserved or regardless of from what actual traits he had actually led her to that point, it seems like it's a, it's a very stunning representation of a type of obsessive love that people can have a type of love that you know sees you walking through the street and like she says she's constantly looking for his eyes but hoping not to see them and mm -hmm. that particular type of love is something that you know i've certainly had in my life and is very difficult to get over but you you get over it once you realize the pragmatic difficulties and you can put the beauty of that love and the almost literary quality, which this film portrays in, I think, a very mm -hmm. grounded way. It allows these Bronte and costume dramas to feel very immediate and present. Uh, and to allow you go, no, yeah, these usually overwrought melodramas can actually relate a lot to the way that I interact, you know, be, be it not be letters, be it be text message, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that for her to, to put the button on that relationship, um, in a way that shows the completeness of their love and the way that he can't, he can't even bother to attempt to see if he can find a way to button it. Or there's, there's something hollow about his love for her that is making a lot of sense to me now that everybody's sort of in agreement that it seems like maybe, maybe he'd get on better with Anne as a potential, like even if, if they could find agreements and then the openness in their love or whatever it might be, but that the relationship um, exists only in, fictional terms in a way between Muriel and Claude, but that doesn't make it any less visceral, palpable, obsessive and fulfilling in all of the most painful and, and beautiful ways, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I think Muriel has this kind of sublime concept of, of love and, and she would much rather crystallize that in this moment of encounter, this, rapturous ecstasy that she experiences with him on this one irreproducible night 
of, of fulfillment of, of all this longing of all this desire of all this anticipation they have that moment and now that that moment's kind of been you know consummated uh she doesn't see the point of continuing it claude he's like hey let's kind of shack up for a while you know let's live together and see how long this can go on and and so they're just coming at this from completely different angles here uh, he sees her as just a, a, a the next lover in a succession and this one may have a special uh significance in his own mind because of their history and and because of the 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 length of build-up to to finally getting to this level of intimacy with her but she wants to sort of keep it in that moment and 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 not sully it with the kind of ordinariness of this uh cohabitation type of thing that he he might uh, anticipate it be the next stage of their relationship well it's the, it's the big question it's the big question about uh yeah. you know passion and a relationship doesn't endure right it's, it, it changes it changes it grows it comes back and forth it it ebbs and flows but that idea of of you know a certain type of i i, I saw her as a character who lives so up in her head Oh yeah, that absolutely. She's not able to be completely in touch with her body. It's almost like she can't integrate those two things. I can't integrate this part of myself that feels great passion and, and, and great sexual pleasure with the part of me that just is um, up in my head and just wants a life that I can control and contain. And mm-hmm. it, it makes sense to me that she ends up with some guy who you know probably is a lot less exciting to her on a certain level but she can contain that because it allows her to stay in her room and read. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to be in, 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 a, in a, a relationship that feels outside of your control. It's exhausting. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. It's driven by passion, and you're with yeah. a, a man who is really spontaneous, unpredictable, powerful. Uh, he's going to take you through all the ups and downs, the emotional roller coaster. That's that's really more honestly than she's capable of handling. I mean, you know, it would it would drive her insane <laughs> in some ways to be in a committed relationship with with someone like. Or at Claire. least it's, yeah. at least she's not willing to go there. She's not willing to go there. Yeah, she's yeah. she yeah. can't she can't break out of the the mold that she's yeah. sort of been cast into. I would agree with that. Well, I just love that idea when she says it. She says, "I'm a Puritan. I can't do it." You know, she just, just she just recognizes that this is this is a bridge too far for me. I can't do it. I can't go there. And uh, I, I I thought that was I think that's so true. I think that just happens all the time. I think there's people who have these really incredible, almost um, uh, sublime connections with one another, and then they just realize, Ugh, you know, to try to maintain that sense of um, the sublime quality of it is exhausting just to think about, and so they let it go. Yeah, or the other alternative, which we've already discussed, which is like, well, now Claude, you have to change to, to suit me. Yeah, uh-huh. and she can't. She cannot ask that of him either. She recognizes yeah. that that's that's too much. I think there's also a really interesting dynamic between both girls, and this is something that you don't see a lot of other French directors of this era doing with their female characters. But uh, Truffaut and I guess Claude both like allow the women to be in total control of how they want their first times to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of consent going on when Anne tells Cloud, 
you'll be my first, but not in Paris. And so they go have the idyllic, you know, like we stay on an island in the forest somewhere in a little cottage. And they very, she very slowly gets more and more comfortable with the idea. And you never get the sense that she's not in anything less than total control of what she's wanting to do. And with Muriel there at the end too, she's very clearly and firmly saying, I want to do this now. And it even ties into what she says early on in the movie where she's like, uh, uh, after he tells them all about the brothel and everything, you know, Muriel says like, you, how can we choose between virtue and vice if I only know virtue? Mm. And, uh, and I think that informs somewhat what Muriel is choosing to do at the end. And that even though cloud has all the control in society, they're never really under his control. And that's part of why he run he winds up alone at the end is because they've figured out ways, negotiated ways for them to, to get the experiences they wanted, but also they're self-aware enough to recognize that he is not right for them. They're not able to, neither of them would be able to maintain a relationship with him and he would not be interested in maintaining a relationship with them. That would be at the standards they would want of fidelity and, and everything else. And I think William mentioned uh, obsession earlier and like, that's one of the things that I think is uh a muted aspect of the movie, but is like a constant theme, like those ill effects of love and obsession. Like Cloud becomes obsessed with Muriel and out of the blue proposes marriage to her in a letter, you know, and she just <laughs> completely rejects him out of hand. And it's a brutal rejection letter, but like, you know, the, and then she, now that she knows he likes him, she becomes obsessed with him. And, it's like, and when you watch it again, you'll, you see like she throws that little two day tantrum where she won't come out of her room until like they meet in the kitchen and she's like, Oh, are you sick? But you know, when you're watching it again, you realize, Oh, she went and had a two day tantrum because she had sexual feelings for cloud as she's realized she started to like him as they've had like intimate conversations and she's repressing it violently. And like, that's why she's like, doing those sorts of things. And I, and again, with the, like those downplayed themes of like obsession with love. And I think that's one of the more compelling parts of the movie. And I watched after seeing at the end of this movie, where they talk about Jerome and Jim or whatever the book it is that's published. I was like, well, I now I have to go watch Jules and Jim. So I watched yep. Jules and Jim on Monday and flipped through a few of the extras as well, which I remember watching them a few years ago. But uh, one of the interviews with Truffaut's, uh, only like nine minutes long, is about the time that this Two English Girls came out. And I think he talks about Two English Girls a little bit there, too. And one of the things he says is that, you know, I feel like I was too immature when I made Jules and Jim and mm. wasn't able to really, like, discuss the the darker, you know, sides of love and obsession. Like, I think those were the exact words in the interview you know, in that film. And those are, and these kinds of relationships are things that, that naturally have that. So I think that's something he was very consciously exploring in this movie and did a really excellent job of it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a great uh, tie in because I, I think these two movies, two English girls and Jules and Jim really are kind of metaphysically connected to each other. And, and I think, uh, Truffaut's decision to make this film when he did, as we've already kind of discussed the context of his personal biography and, and his situation to really fully understand and appreciate 
each of these individual films, I think uh, revisiting the other is is highly advised. I guess I'll put it that way. If not essential, they really do complement each other quite a bit because I think they they do provide a a bit of a balancing act. You know, Jules and Jim is is certainly a, a highly regarded, much celebrated you know masterpiece of the early new wave. Uh, it's got a very beautiful, um, you know, Blu-ray uh, dual format edition. That's the version I have. Nice little slipcase. Uh, really a nice little commemorative piece to a pretty important movie. Uh, this one here is kind of lingering in the shadows there, and I think it's very unfortunate that it doesn't have maybe a little bit higher profile. Maybe in some small way, this podcast can draw a few folks to to give this one a, a serious look. I, I am struck also by the fact that this is, a, from what I've read in the reviews, this may be the most uh, kind of erotically forthright and explicit and intense uh, depiction of sexuality that, that Truffaut committed to film uh, in his uh, all-too-brief career. Uh, you know, there's a number of his later films I have not seen yet, but there are definitely some very intense scenes in that aspect that uh, perhaps were, were, you know, part of the times that they were made in. There was a little bit more of a, a freedom to quote unquote go there. What, what did you all think of just that kind of uh, the emotional intensity and, and explicitness, if you will, of, of some of those scenes? Um, well, it was fairly explicit for 1971. Yeah, I mean, this was, yeah. This was uh, out there. I mean, I, I was uh, in high school during that period of time and you didn't see this kind of... Um, sexual portrayal in movies very much. And, and even when you did, it was usually um, coded or, or, or almost portrayed in some prurient manner. So to right. have something that was this straightforward, I thought was, was really interesting. Yeah, because I don't think it was, this was exploitive. This wasn't, you know, no. uh, titillating it, or anything like that. Right. And it's almost like a healthy uh, uh, approach to sex as... Um, as uh, I think it was William, it was you who was saying about the consent, right? I mean, just even that aspect of it, talking about it from that point of view, mm-hmm. it was ahead of its time. And also the direct discussion of masturbation, because masturbation at that point was still not even talked about in polite company right. uh, in, in the early 70s. It was still, you know, one of those things that felt like you only talked about in, in, in almost, uh, again, coded language. You know, it wasn't um, just talked about in such a forthright manner. Right. And and this wasn't done for, for giggles, like in a Woody Allen no. type of way or anything like right, that. Right, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, that, oh, those things, those taboos were just being broken mm-hmm, right at mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. beginning of the 70s, the late 60s, the, the um, early 70s. It was, uh, it still feels like a very um, daring film for that period of time. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. and and again, uh, that may be where it just went a little bit further than than some audience members were were willing to go, and so maybe it was a word of mouth thing. Maybe Truffaut at this point was not quite as in fashion as others. I don't, I'm, you know, it's hard for me to say. To me, this feels like a, a very significant work and one that anybody who's a student of Truffaut's career really should grapple with because I think. This is a movie that meant a lot to him on a personal level. I think he poured a lot of uh, you know, himself into it. And it's a beautifully made film. And let's talk about Nestor Almandros, the cinematographer. 
uh, he had well, done. I have to jump in here. I have yeah. to, to just name drop a little bit because sure. uh, I was I was lucky enough to work with Nestor Alamendros on uh, Places in the Fire. It was one of the Wonderful. first films I was an assistant editor on. And uh, I was lucky enough to work fairly closely with him because I was um, singing dailies every night and he would come mm. in and, and look at um, dailies. At the time, he was starting to lose his eyesight, which is very mm. sad. Mm. And he would have to get up very, very close to the screen to to, to, to look at the dailies. Uh, but he was a lovely man, and and I do wish that this film could undergo some type of restoration because I have a feeling that the color in it is a little muted in the um, mm-hmm. in the uh, version that we see on the, the Criterion Collection. It looks to me like it's a, a somewhat faded print, a good print, but but you know I think that there's probably a lot richer colors in there than 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 what we see, but. I do think that the, the look and feel of the film and the way that the, the actors are blocked. I, I always say that a well-directed film is one where you could turn down the sound and still hit all of the emotional beats of the story. You should be able to not necessarily track all the exposition, but understand the emotional movement of, of what characters are feeling. And this is certainly a film that does that in terms of the way that it's blocked. And- yeah, it really does. I actually had on my iPad behind my computer, it was playing the second half of the film while we were talking earlier that since I fell asleep about halfway through last night (laughs) Um, (laughs) and like one of those blocking shots, like with the sound off that really stood out. And I noticed that Truffaut did a lot of, and Almendros did a lot of these shots throughout the movie is uh, when Anne tells cloud that she's going to go off to Persia with the other guy. Like they, they enter into the shot and the camera stays with them and they kind of like walk behind some of like the foliage and stuff. And then they come back out and they exit. And it's just one master shot where the camera stays with them. But the way they're walking in and out from the foreground to the background or are slightly obscured is just like handling all the emotions of what's like being communicated there without even having to read the subtitles you just you know this is a like a breakup scene and it's just a beautiful uh shot and the one shot that i really noticed both times i watched it that i was just like wow that's an incredible shot is when the very first reel of the movie about they've just been in wales just a little bit and they're like riding their bikes or walking through the forest and like you're tracking along with them. And then they talk about the waterfall and how cloud is like the waterfall. And we tilt down and follow the waterfall for a while. And we follow the stream and then it tilts back up. And rather than back to where we were in the beginning, we're like looking further down the stream. And as it tilts up, it reveals like we're just looking through the underneath of this bridge and uh so it has this very like vignette effect where it like the bridge isn't lit very well but you can see through it and uh it's just an incredible shot like and i was just i watched it and i was like how did they how did they get that shot because like it starts up with them and just the following the water and then showing the bridge and you would never even know there's anything behind you when you're like following with them initially and then also just the the two sides of the bridge as like a metaphor and, and everything else is just very, very elegant and stunning little piece of camera work. Hmm. I, I love these technical observations. I think, you know, I, I did find myself getting caught up in some of the, just the visual poetry, uh, if you will, of some of those. 
some of those shots, some of those sequences. What about the like the little sort of semi archaic, you know, the keyhole, you know, kind of closing in on a tight circle, isolating one character. Uh, you know, we, he certainly did a, a Truffaut did a number of, of effects of that sort back in uh, uh, shoot the piano player, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a retro type of a thing going back to the early days of cinema. Uh, and I guess this kind of matches the period. This is kind of a pre world war one setting it seems, or if, if, you know, 19 teens is, I guess where I would kind of generically place the action of this film so he's he's kind of using some of those kind of old-fashioned kind of quaint effects uh did, did that work for you all yeah <laughs> i really liked them i <laughs> thought they were wonderfully playful and on point like i just so like those first couple times that we see those opticals where like they just you know it's just that little like receding circle out was really uh I thought it just put like that little button on like the feel of the movie, especially. And I think he lets it go as like the movie's mood shifts in the second half more. Uh, but in that, op- that opening part, you see him more and I think they're pretty fun. Yeah. There's actually one, maybe about 15 minutes in where we're way up high looking down on the house and like you see the mm. sea and everything and uh, cloud and Anne are like up there you know, maybe in the mid ground up above the house. So we can see them together talking. And then in the far distance, we see Muriel come out of the house and the optical goes, the circle goes right into Muriel and then goes to black. And then we we're on black for a beat and we cut back in and it's not quite the same shot, but it's almost the same shot. It's just high and wide above the house. And you're not supposed to do that. And it's right. like, the, you know, like you use those establishing shots at the end or the beginning, you know, sequences, which both of those technically qualify as, but to go from, you know, irising out of, of that, uh, that shot to just cutting hard back into the same shot. It's a little bit jolting, but again, with it's kind of playful, but I was also thinking about that and, you, you know, hearing that like, some 25 minutes were cut out of the movie. Like that could be a spot where an entire sequence was extracted because Mm -hmm. like that, that high and wide shot could have been the start of a new sequence and a whole other sequence could have fit right between those. uh, And you would never know. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I, the only thing that bothered me and and bothers me about a lot of films in the seventies was the use of the zoom. I feel that people were <laughs> yeah. still trying to figure out how to uh-huh. use the zoom effectively. And there's a lot of times where I just, as you see that focal length changing as it's pushing in really fast, you just become so aware of the zoom. And and I, I don't like that as a as mm-hmm. something visually. It, it bothers me in a lot of films. And from that period of time, I see, I see these films and it's just like people were just zoom happy. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I, um, it's a technique that's fallen out of favor. Nowadays, you don't want to be able to be aware of a zoom. You want to do it really mm-hmm. slowly or, or, right. or, or you don't want your attention drawn to the fact that the, the focal length is changing as, as rapidly as it is. Um, but but I, I, I do like the idea of the iris as a way of focusing your attention and almost like uh, the closing of a chapter or the beginning of a chapter, that sort of thing. I think mm-hmm. it's very effective. Yeah, it's got it's got a bit of emotional punctuation to sort of close out a little vignette and then move into the next thing. I wasn't a huge fan of the score. The score, I mm-hmm. feel, I feel like a lot of his music 
feels very much like wallpaper to me. Georges Delarue was the composer yeah, here, I, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm just. I'm not a fan of that kind of score that just isn't really adding something. It's more just accompaniment. You know, it's. It feels there are places where music can be used to almost tell another level of the story. It can mm-hmm. be used to tell you what somebody's thinking or feeling. And I did not feel that the score added a lot. So was it more of just a situation kind of a question of blandness or just kind of generic quality? Is there a direction I, I, you would well, have maybe I, liked to see that gone? I, I just think that the, the most effective musical scoring of films to me is that which is really following a psychological line. Mm-hmm. That's really playing mm-hmm. the psychology of a character or I, um, I'm not a fan of, of that composer. I never have been. I just okay. feel like his music is, I, I wouldn't say it's bland. I would just say it feels like wallpaper in certain yeah. sense to me. I don't know if other people feel that way, but um, uh, I'm always looking for a score that takes me deeper into the story. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah. I just feel like there were missed opportunities there. I, I can't give it especially high marks. It, it wasn't, you know, a distraction or de- detracting from the overall impact of the film. But yeah, I, I can certainly, you know, acknowledge that point there. Yeah, um, I, I, I was just, I would just chime in that I didn't, I wasn't impressed by the score. But I think a little bit of it is the style of how, you know, French composers and uh, French scores were used in at the time. Uh, David and I spoke about the Widow Kuderic last year and Mm -hmm. the score for that was awful just incredibly (laughs) terrible and there were there were clearly only two cues composed for the movie and they just kept using them over and over again whenever they needed to like transition out of a a scene or like try to emphasize an emotional point and i kind of feel like a little bit there's something similar happening here where you know delarue wrote a handful of cues and a handful of like little, just like exclamations, a little sting that you could put in various places, but it's not scored. There's not underscore going under, you know, 60, 70% of the movie. You know, there's probably only score on 10 to 20% of the movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's noticeable when it pops up. And when you notice it, because you're noticing it, you're not like, I wasn't at least like really enjoying it. And I just was, I was like, Oh, there's some score there. Hmm. Wow, that's like yeah. it's just weird to suddenly pop out of no score into a little like you know tinkle of a score for a little bit, and then it's just <laughs> it's it's the abruptness of the, like the sonic change. It's like you're breaking the auditory plane. It's just not really it's 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 disrupting the flow and everything. And I just I think it that style I really don't like of just you know using it just as accents here and there. Uh, so I yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting thing, just what was happening with film scores at that particular time in general. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that um, uh, there's a lot of films during that period of time that I'm just like, wow, is that the best they could do? And it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I don't know what the French film industry is like at all, but certainly in the um, in the uh, American film industry. I mean, if you you can find various. Um, YouTube videos of uh, Bernard Herrmann's score for Torn Curtain. Uh, and you just know that if if Hitchcock had kept Bernard Herrmann's score, that movie would have been better and more successful. There's just no two ways about yeah. it, you know. But there was um, a push for a different type of musical palette during that period of time mm-hmm. that I think was, was affecting the business uh, across the board. 
Um, and I, I don't know. I just I was I was trying to imagine certain scenes in the film with a different kind of musical uh, palette, and and, mm. and I could see it taking you deeper into just directing what mm-hmm. your subjective re- response should be to certain scenes. And I just feel like that that was the one area of the movie that I was just like, yeah, yeah, no, those are really intriguing hard. thoughts. Uh, kind of leading my imagination here. Uh, it, it, it does kind of feel like this was just kind of almost like a, a tossed off kind of, well, you got to have something. So we'll just kind of throw a few jingles in there <laughs> and, and leave it at yeah. that. And, and even if you repeat the same themes over and over, perhaps it, it just was musical scores were just not valued or prioritized and they were very willing to just sort of settle for whatever the name brand composer could throw in there. It's also a budgetary thing. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. In, in of course. Certain, like I, I agree with uh, Adam that I think it feels like that certain of these cues were used over again. And um, probably also if you put 25 minutes back into the movie, then, then there was probably yeah. some score that was recycled. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, that's something that I really like to analyze when I, I teach a, I teach at UCLA and I oftentimes um, will talk to my students just about good film scoring and bad film scoring. And, mm. you know, there's some, uh, there's some great um, French composers. I mean, Alexander Desplat, mm-hmm. you know, is, is a fantastic composer that's working now and the way that he uses the music to, to take you deeper into the story or, you know, any number of really great yeah. composers. It just wasn't, it wasn't happening here. That's my only point. <laughs> I think it's well established. Indeed. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, I know it's getting kind of late on the East Coast for me and William. Um, so this is probably a good time to start wrapping up our kind of summary thoughts. We, we've had a, an outstanding conversation. I've really enjoyed each of your contributions and uh, has really pulled me even further into my uh contemplation and appreciation of what Truffaut was up to here. And uh, I wouldn't surprise me if I decided to want to give it another look somewhere in the not too distant future, uh, just to continue my uh, you know acquaintance and, and understanding of what Francois Truffaut had to say. So maybe we can just kind of go around with just a, kind of a last word. Uh, William, we haven't heard from you in a little bit. So what are your kind of closing thoughts, if you will, on uh, Two English Girls? I like the score. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I appreciate that Delarue shows up in the movie as the legal advisor for Claude's family. Um, I guess my oh, final thoughts okay. will include um, also a shout out to David Markham, who is Kika Markham's father, who Kika plays Anne Brown, and David Markham, her father, plays the palm reader. Oh itself. yeah, right. Okay, that's a uh, cool also little. Also goes on to appear in a Day for Night. Yeah, and um, some you might also recognize uh, Philippe Leotard, who was Durka. He's a popular French actor, and it's a great cast. Um, but my favorite character, despite the fact that I think uh, Muriel is the center of attention, is Mrs. Brown. I think <laughs> I think Sylvia Marriott, who's a not very well known English actress who plays Mrs. Brown, gives a really compelling performance. And there's this beautiful moment in the film when Leo's, um, well, basically Truffaut as Leo's voiceover, says when they're hiding in the cave that it was the first time that he saw the beauty and the sort of youthful attractiveness of Mrs. Brown. And 
I love that this film had a moment like that because if it in a way in in all the most like beautiful and good ways it helps avoid any desexualization of older characters in that in a way that separates them from the um, issues of the film and there's another sequence when Leo is thinking about his mother who's reacting very flippantly or very curtly to these discussions and his lofty romantic ideals and the subconscious narration declares that Leo figures that at that point that his mother had never really loved or hadn't loved in this sort of way and the two different mothers having different vibes in that respect and uh, a various amounts of um, detail I thought is incredibly admirable and for a film like this where I mean, I even think my other favorite character is probably their neighbor who has the best bad French in a way that it's really easy to understand. And it's very clear, clearly actual. <laughs> he has no other film credits, that actor. And that makes me so sad because I wanted to see more of that guy. But um, what are you going to do? Anyway, I thought the film was great. And uh, I think that my love of the score, back, back to get back to that, may stem from the fact that I just had uh, a second and really valuable rewatch of uh, Godard's Contempt, which also has a Delarue score that is mm. very obvious and uh, a sort of oppressive in, in a way that's meant to distance you and heighten things about the film that are not necessarily the psychology. So I was definitely viewing this score through that recent lens. It shares similar palettes of instrumentation, especially with the use of strings, and it's recorded very similarly. So when I started to approach it like that, I appreciated for it the things that I think have been quite correctly criticized about it. So I think I was able to get on the, the score's wavelength as being like an oddly rhetorical device and something that may cause a bit of disruption or may uh, underlie a certain novelistic narration-sodded tendency of certain types of movies. So perhaps I, I was able to appreciate it differently, but it definitely didn't strike me as a score that would be too iconic to listen to on its own. And I, I would definitely blame the repetitiousness of the use of the cues on the recut because my only guess is that he had the material that ended up in the finished film in terms of music, raw material. So, hmm. uh, but I, I think that the accusations made are all valid and um, make a lot of sense. So, the, so I think, I think that like you've said, this, this film should receive more attention and i hope if a few people see it if not many because they are subscribed to this podcast i think that would be a tremendous thing okay well we will get our lobbying efforts underway and see if we can uh channel the criterion energy into uh getting a physical release and, and all the bonus goodies because I, I think yeah the, the literary context and just the the depth of feeling that Truffaut invested in this film makes it very worthy of a package that would allow us to really understand the significance uh, of the work to him personally and in the context of his, uh, of his career. So fantastic. Uh, any other little updates? I guess I've already asked kind of how things are going, but uh, you have any projects in the work, William, any, any, uh, or are you just kind of waiting for, the COVID cloud the lift before you well, get back uh, my, to that my, creative my, stuff. Yeah, my opera company had to postpone two shows. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I haven't made any decisions yet about when we're going to start up again. And, and um, if what, I mean, what, if any online content we think would actually be worth the time, energy and risk to produce. 
Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've not been as keen on to do too much of that compared to some other groups. So more, more just because I, I find that my val- the value I would just derive from not doing it is greater. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. There's going to be a point when things are different. And, and right now I should be in England doing yeah, my, usual, right. my usual world tour of different shows and whatnot. And uh, it's all canceled this year. So yeah. I'm getting pangs and I'm hoping to do something soon. Otherwise, yeah, like, like the things I said earlier, keeping myself busy with individual creation. So that way, when this is all done, I have, I'm better equipped to at all the different uh, fields in which I, I occupy. All right. Well, yeah, we'll keep that fire burning, William. We are pulling for you. We know that a lot of the, a lot of your peers in the creative arts community are definitely going through some, some struggles and having to reevaluate things at this time. So hang in there. It's been great talking with you and we'll look forward to getting you back on in the near future. I'm sure. Uh, Adam, any final comments, wrap ups on uh, two English girls? I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's a top tier Truffaut, uh, especially after watching it the second time. It's definitely some of my problems with it kind of evaporated the second time around because I think you understand the characters more richly and and why things are happening that that aren't necessarily apparent the first time around. And I think I would love to see Criterion put out a really good edition of this. Lavish would be wonderful, but I think if just even with a few supplements, like just looking at some of the different things we've talked about would open up the movie to a lot of people that may have uh, missed out on it. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you back on and uh, really enjoyed the yeah, the chat tonight. Norman, I'll give you kind of the last word. What are your kind of final comments on this film before we close? Well, I think I said that? to you when we uh, first uh, got on the phone together, uh, you know, this is it's so interesting to uh, be talking about Truffaut on Hitchcock's birthday because yeah. um, Truffaut's book about Hitchcock was really such a fundamental text for me when I was 12 years old and mm. was the thing that made me want to work in film in the first place. Wow. And uh, I just think that seeing this film and then also with all of the great uh, reading material that you sent along, really understanding where this fits into his own career, you know, the, the, the point in his life where he was really looking at his life and, and drawing conclusions about certain things that he was expressing in a, in, in a, in a creative way is, is so fascinating. And uh, I found this great quote by him that I just th- thought I'd throw out there because it's so perfect for the pandemic. It's, he, he said, uh, three films a day, three books a week, and records of great music would be enough to make me happy to the day I die. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that's pretty much been my uh, motto during the, the lockdown and the ongoing pandemic. So uh, it's really great to uh, have participated with you guys. And, and I've really enjoyed uh, talking about the film and and hearing everybody else's uh, feelings about it. Oh, fantastic. No, this has been a real joy. I, you know, I, I appreciate this film coming into it, but uh, you've all really expanded my own, you know, awareness and understanding of what's going on in this film. Uh, so yeah, even though it may seem at the surface scan, minor Truffaut or obscure or whatever, th- this is a big one. And I, I do hope uh, that uh, people give it a look. Yeah, Scorsese apparently can consider considers it uh, Truffaut's masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, some some of know. the essays and some yeah, well, yeah. Right. I, I, you got to trust Scorsese's judgment on things like this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the 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 links that Norman's referred to are in the show notes. So if you're just listening to this, go to CriterionCast.com and click on the link, 
and you'll see a, a series of essays, some written in 71, 72, and others in more recent years, uh, kind of giving you a few perspectives uh, on the film. I think this is one that is, is should be highly regarded by anybody who's taken the time to sort of study it up. So we hope that our conversation has enhanced your own understanding and appreciation. We do thank you for listening in. Uh, the next film in our uh, series is going to be A Touch of Zen, King Hu's film. So we're going to be kind of literally going to the other side of the world. Uh, a Touch of Zen was released on this very same day uh, as uh, Two English Girls, November 18th, 1971. So uh got another excellent lineup for that podcast Uh, we'll be coming at you in another week or two and uh keep listening we are getting close on the home stretch of 1971 films Uh, excited to bring season three to a close uh maybe take a little bit of a break and then get season four started in the somewhat foreseeable future so thank you for hanging in with us everybody we'll be coming at you real soon good night (laughs) 